Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6 this morning. My task today is to convince you that being a slave is something that you'd want to be. And as you're going to, to see as you get into this passage, it's, that won't be hard if you understand what, what Paul unfolds for us here, beginning in verse 15 through the, through the end of the chapter. What a blessing to say the familiar words open to the book of Romans. I mean, frankly, it would be hard to underestimate the, the, the significance and the reach of the, uh, of the book. Some of the greatest figures of, of church history have come to faith through it. All who read it have been marked by it, you including. Because there's no other book, no other letter in the Bible that, that presents the whole gospel in such a clear fashion. I mean, in Romans, God takes you from sinner to saint, from condemnation to glorification, from looking to yourself to looking to Christ, all by grace alone, through faith alone. And Romans even anticipates and answers the most common objections that, that people have to this kind of gospel, a gospel of grace. Like, like what, what does a person need to be saved? Which is what Paul has been outlining in chapter 1, 2, and half of 3? Or, or how can God justify sinners who are, who are truly guilty and remain just himself, which is the second half of Romans 3 and, and Romans 4? Does salvation by grace alone mean that you could just sin and be, be secure? You know, the once saved, always saved, and then live like the devil? That, that's the section that we're in right now, Romans 5 and and six and, and what about sin after I come to Christ? How does God deal with that? Does He condemn me again? Romans six and Romans seven. Those last few questions are being answered in the in the current current section, Romans chapter six and Romans chapter seven. But the Romans doesn't even end there. there. There are more questions answered in chapters beyond, like like where's God's plan for Israel or where is Israel? I mean, if salvation is of the Jews, where are they? Why are they so? few being saved. I mean, if salvation is, is all God, I mean, can he be blamed for those who are, who are not saved, the Jews who are not saved? I mean, is he unjust by who he saves and, and, and when? I mean, Romans covers more theology than any other New Testament letter. I mean, theology proper, anthropology, Christology, pneumatology, ecclesiology, eschatology, and some of those you might not even know what they mean. But Romans covers it. I mean, it, it speaks to total depravity, the atonement of Christ, Adam's fall, the Spirit's work, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, foreknowledge, predestination, justification, sanctification, glorification, election, God's glory, and God's covenants with Israel. And all of that's before he even gets to the application part, beginning in Romans 12. And a passage that you likely know, know well, I, therefore I urge you, brethren, or I beseech you, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What, what mercies? Paul beseeches this by mercies. I mean, what mercies? I mean, all the mercies that Paul outlines in the first 12 chapters of, of the book. And Romans answers all of those questions and, and more and then applies them to the Christian life, which is why it's placed at the head of the class in the New Testament seating chart. I mean, probably didn't didn't uh, pass your notice that, that it's the first epistle in your, in your New Testament after the, after the Gospels. And that's not by mistake, because God wants you to understand. He wants you to understand doctrine. And so having completed our foray into Colossians 3 to help us apply the first part of Romans 6, we, we return to this great letter today, and, and we're in part 4 of the, of the book. Romans in eight parts, if you, you, you remember. There's the introduction to the gospel, then there's the universal need, the exclusive solution of the gospel, and then the section we're in, a believer's assurance because of the, the gospel of God's righteousness. It begins in chapter 5, and it goes all the way through the end of, of chapter 8. And then after that, what, there's more, the defense of the gospel related to Israel, the transforming power of the gospel, in Romans 12, the example of preaching the gospel in Romans 15, and then praise. 
praise to God, doxology for the gospel in chapter 16. And chapter 5 begins a, a new section, which is all about the blessings that come from the gospel that Paul preaches. And those blessings are, are presented to you to, to bring assurance, to assure you of, of your position. And if you struggle with, with assurance or, or, or security, you should plunge yourself into Romans chapter 5 through 8 and read those chapters over and over and over uh, again because starting in chapter 5 and stretching through chapter 8, Paul outlines all the promises and the privileges that we have because we have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, he told us that we have peace and grace and, and hope with God and eternal life, with which Christ, the, the last Adam, brings. You're either under Adam or under the last Adam being Christ. And in chapter 6, the part that we're in, he's telling us that those blessings, because we're in union with Christ, to lead us to live like it. And then he's going to declare us free from the law in chapter 7, and one day we'll even be freed from this body of death. And then finally in chapter 8, the chapter that we all love, talks about the new life that we now possess in the Holy Spirit. And that uplifting section ends with this immovable confidence that nothing can separate us from these blessings or the love of God in Christ Jesus. The chapter 5 sets the theme of this justified assurance for all, all four chapters. And, and you can actually see the break. Look at how Romans 5 begins. It begins a new section with the word therefore. Therefore, having been justified by faith, past tense, we have peace with God, present tense, through our Lord Jesus Christ, the means by which we have both this, this justification and peace. I mean, Paul says because of something that happened to you in the past, and that event being our justification, which he explains in the first four chapters of the book, both the need for it and how it happens, because we have been justified by faith alone, we now possess certain assurances that flow from that justification. We have peace with God, we have hope and joy and security, and we have a never-ending fountain of grace. And this flood, Paul says, of unmerited blessings that we possess, that can never go away, that every Christian has in a super-abundant amount, because of this flood of unmerited blessings, it brings up a series of objections that Paul addresses head on beginning here in chapter 6. In fact, chapter 6 and chapter 7 are actually an extended commentary on the last two verses of, of, of chapter 5. It's a giant parenthesis, if you, if you will. Look at how Romans 5 ends. That's how it begins. It begins this new section. This is how it ends. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul describes this reign of, uh, of grace, this abounding grace, and in such a way that it stuns the human senses in disbelief and produces objections. I mean, it's a grace that comes to you in your sin. And it's a grace that even increases to meet your future sins that you commit after coming to Christ. It's not just grace that, that covers the sins that you did before you believed on Jesus. It's a grace that covers your future sins. And this flooding grace doesn't just cover them. It engulfs them, Paul says, and buries them in the bottom of God's sea. Sea of forgetfulness. It's a reigning grace that rules over us like a king, as our sin once did. And this grace is a present possession for all who have believed upon Jesus Christ by faith alone. And that's what Paul just got done explaining. And his final statement about, about grace brings up some questions about it. So he launches into a new series of explanations here in, in chapter 6, all of which are focused on how grace interacts with sin. What do we do with sin? Is sin gone? How do we deal with sin? I mean, now that we're under grace, are we, are we just able to do whatever we want to do and God's just going to wink at it? I mean, frankly, when, when, when you consider the message of the New Testament, when you actually think about the gospel and how 
happens in the gospel. It comes to you by grace and it's yours by faith alone. It's so one-sidedly shocking that you find yourself asking, I mean, is this possible? I mean, could this be true? Could there really be a salvation so full and so, so free, so unmerited, so having nothing to do with me? I mean, it almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it, whenever you think about it? You ever had that thought? I get heaven whenever I deserve hell, and all of my sins are forgiven only by believing upon Jesus Christ, by trusting in what someone else did for me? Really? Yes, really, Paul says. I mean, no law, no hoops, no deeds on my part? No, none of that. Paul says it's by grace alone. And this same saving grace, Paul says, is also a sanctifying grace. It's all you need to live for God now that you're saved as well, which is what he's explaining in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 deals with the questions in verse 1 and then the one we'll look at today in verse 15. And because the, our natural inclination to grace is to find it shocking. I mean, we think grace is insufficient. I mean, I have to do something more, right? And Paul shouts, no. God forbid that you should even try to do something more. Say, okay, okay, I'm saved by grace. I, I, I believe that. But I need law or some other things to, to keep me on the right track, right? And again, Paul says, no, you don't, which is what we'll, we'll look at today. Look at Romans 6, verse 1. Here's the first question. What shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin so that grace may increase? Here's grace and how it interacts with sin. Shall, and here's the accusation. Shall we just continue in sin so that grace may increase? What shall we say then? Say about what, Paul, about this, this question of grace, this grace that he's been teaching about. And he answers that question with indignation. May it never be. And then he begins two sections explaining, both introduced by similar questions. There are two parts of Romans 6. first part is these first 14 verses that we've already covered, and it answers the question, shall, shall we go on sinning because we're under grace? Shall we sin under grace? And Paul just finished that, or we just finished that section, I should say. Should say. The, the second part is beginning in verse 15, and it goes to the end, of the end of the book. And it's about sinning without law. It answers the question, shall we sin because we're, we're not under Old Testament law anymore, but now under grace? Verse 15, here's the second question. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? And again, Paul answers the same thing, but may it never be. And if those two things sound familiar, they're supposed to. What shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be in verse 1. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. I mean, both of those questions are about grace with a slightly different twist. And both are roundly rejected, soundly rejected by Paul. I mean, the first question is focused on continuing in sin because we're under grace. And the second is all about restraint because we no longer have the law as our master. And both of those questions deal with objections to Paul's teaching about salvation by faith alone and, and grace alone. And chapter 6 is, is his response. And if you get the gospel right, if you preach a gospel like Paul is preaching here, then those questions, those are questions that, that people will likely ask you when when they're confronted with grace. You may have asked those questions. A grace so full and, and free. I mean, if you're saying, I am forgiven for all of my sin by grace already, then, then can't I just go on sinning without consequence because God's going to forgive me anyway? And secondly, if there is no law, if there's no list of rules or standards that I keep now that I'm saved, then, then what's to hold me back from sin? I mean, won't people just lack restraint under a system like that and go wild? I mean, shouldn't we keep a little law in there? And I know my heart. And Paul says, if that's what you're thinking, you don't understand the gospel that he's preaching, or not deeply enough. 
Or to use his repeated phrase, God forbid, may it never be. This is what the Jews were struggling with when they heard Paul's message. And, and think about it. You can understand that. I mean, these are Jewish people that have been brought under, up under the law. This, this is what they lived under. They were bar mitzvah. They, they, they did the Sabbath every, every Saturday. You see, in the Old Testament system, Old Testament, the law is viewed as a daily taskmaster. You're kept under the law. The law is how you're interacted with, with God. You, you stayed under the law, and the law kept you from sin. It was like a fence. It also showed you what you should do for righteousness. And many thought that's how you earned it. So a good follower of God under Moses was a law keeper, a rule keeper. And then Paul comes along and blows up both of those concepts and says you're no longer under that law since Christ has come. You're now under grace. And what they heard was that you're no longer under any strength. There's no fences, and the horses are just going to run whatever they, wherever they want. And then you're telling me, Paul, that wherever the horses run, grace is going to cover that and forgive it. Jesus has already paid for those sins. That's what they were hearing. If you remove somebody's boundaries, they're just going to do whatever they want. And so Paul says, you're missing it entirely. And I need to explain it to you. I did not say you're not under a master. I said you're not under law. And there's a huge difference. Because we're no longer under a litany of rules, the rules that lead us to Christ. We're under Christ himself who writes his law on our hearts. And these are the same things that Christians stumble over e e even today. And so they, they add to their Christianity a lot of do's and don'ts. I mean, they think without them people will be lawless. And Paul says that's a misunderstanding of the gospel and grace. He's not arguing against wisdom or even boundaries. He's arguing for where the real power is. The power is not in the boundary. The power is in grace that transforms your heart. And people who have received the gospel and tasted its grace have no need for burdensome rules because they desire in their heart to please God. And if you've ever tried what the Galatians did and added a bunch of external, extra-biblical things and then attempted to live under it, you know it's powerless. And it's a joyless way, way to live, not to mention something that you can never keep. And Christians that try to live that way are joyless and fruitless. Parents that try to parent that way produce hypocrites. Or children that reject this perversion of Christianity the minute that they can because they never saw the real thing. Husbands and wives who operate their homes that way have train wrecks for marriages. And Paul's response to all of that is if you understand what the gospel does to you and what the gospel does in you, then you don't have to worry about either of these questions. Just sinning because you're under grace and God will forgive it or be without restraint. And in this second part of the chapter, Paul explains this by pointing out you're either God's slave or sin's slave, and there is no middle ground. I mean, Paul uses the analogy here at verse 15 and, and to the end of the chapter, an analogy of biblical slavery to answer the accusation that Christians, are under, that Christians under grace are lawless. I mean, this entire section begins in verse 15, and it's one long answer, actually, broken down in three parts. Let me show you how it unfolds before we, we get into it. We'll not finish the whole thing, this whole section today, but let me, let me show you how it goes together. One answer to this question, verse 15, What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. There's the short answer. No, you're wrong. But then Paul explains it. And he makes a general argument. Here, here, here's his argument in, in verse 16. He makes a general argument about slavery. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? It's a general argument about slavery. When, when you present yourself to someone as slaves, he starts by this general argument. And then in verses 17 and 18, he shows how that argument specifically applies spiritually. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, 
you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And you have been freed from sin. You, became, you have become slaves of righteousness. It's a spiritual slavery. It goes from the general, applies it specifically to spiritual matters. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness. Spiritual slavery, resulting in sanctification. Is the one command that, that's there. Present your members. And then in verses 20 through 23, which contains that part of the Romans road that, that you know, Paul says it's why we should listen to him by contrasting the results and the fruit of both. Results of slavery to sin, results of slavery to God. Look at, at verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you, were you deriving from the things which are now ashamed? Verse 22, now that you're being freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. He outlines the, the fruits of the benefits of both types of slavery. And then this summary statement in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our, our Lord. We put all that together... There are three arguments that explain how grace operates through spiritual slavery. Three arguments that explain how grace operates through spiritual slavery. There's the representation of slavery, general representation, verses 15 and 16. Some parts apply, some parts don't. I'll show you what does. The reality of slavery, you're either a slave to God or a slave to sin. And then the results of that, that slavery. Good fruit stuff you don't want. It's all an explanation of grace and how it explains how grace keeps us when there is no fence, no external law that, that hems us in, nothing external. It's transferred from the external now to the internal. And this first argument that, that Paul makes provides this representation. It, it comes from a representation of of slavery. Slavery represents something that Paul wants to show us. He says there's, a, there's an unreasonable question being asked. There's an illustration of slavery given. And then there's this principle of obedience that, that he wants you to get. If you would at verse 15. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Short answer. Long answer. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? And verse 15 is the question that Paul is addressing. And he vehemently denies that Christianity needs rules and that if we don't have them, that we'll sin. He says that's an unreasoned question. You're, you're not using logic. You're not using your brain. Uh, verse 16, that's what he means by, do you not know? Use your brain is what he's saying. Do you not know? His argument is, is an appeal to reason. Do you not understand? What do you want us to understand, Paul? Then he gives this general principle about slavery. Slavery is something that the Romans knew very, very well because most of them were slaves. I mean, it's like saying, of course you know what I'm about to say. It's common sense, as we would say. Any reasonable person would come to my conclusion that I'm making here, Paul's saying. And the conclusion is, slaves obey their masters. It's plain logic. And you have a new master now as a Christian that you obey because he's now your master instead of sin. I mean, that fundamental shift has happened because of grace. And it's happened at the moment of faith. And now you have a new master. And now you obey that, that new master by the heart or from the heart. And he appeals to this illustration of slavery, which I said the Romans knew really well. And this is, a, this, this is not the word servant, but slave. It's the word doulos, uh, if you've never read MacArthur's book titled Slave, I'd, I'd highly recommend it to you. It, it, it explains this word in depth, what a doulos is. This is a word that's often mistranslated in the King James or other versions. 
It's often translated a bond servant. A doulos is translated bond servant, which is a role that frankly didn't exist in, in Roman times. You, in Roman times, you were either a servant or you were a slave. And this is the word for a slave. And the difference between those is obvious. I mean, a servant has a choice. A slave does not have a choice. I mean, a servant may do the work, uh, may work for you, and may do the same kinds of tasks as, that, that a slave does, but he could quit anytime he wanted. He could go work for somebody else. The slave was under the absolute authority of their, of their master. They're, they're owned, in fact. Now understand, whenever you and I hear the word slavery, you likely think of it in completely negative terms, and like rightly so. I mean, you, you probably think of it in light of American slavery or the evils that were, that were perpetrated in our early history, callous things that evil masters did, did to their slaves. But American slavery wasn't the kind of slavery that was operating in, in Paul's day. Not entirely. Some things that were parallel, but not entirely. I mean, it's estimated that up to 75% of the population of Rome, two-thirds to three-fourths of the population of Rome were slaves. There were more slaves in Rome than free people. And whenever you take what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that, that, that God saves the lowliest of the low in order to, to exalt His grace... Think of how many slaves were in the church that Paul's writing to here. And he's saying, you understand slavery? You are one, in human terms. Roman slaves were not like early American slaves in many ways. I mean, American slavery, which is rightly called the, one of the darkest parts of our history, started out treating people as indentured servants, but quickly moved to treating people less than human. As you know, most were, were from Africa, enslaved and sold even by rival tribes. And while that type of slavery existed in Rome, where, where conquered peoples were, were actually brought in, into slavery, that was the minority of the type of people in Rome. I mean, most slaves in Roman times were, were able to earn their freedom. And when they did, they were free. And they often became members of the household. They actually became members of the family, which is the analogy that Paul appeals to in in Galatians chapter 3, I mean, many slaves actually sold themselves into slavery in order to pay off a debt. I have a debt that I can't pay, and I'll become an indentured slave. And during the time that the debt was still hanging over them, they were treated as property. They were, they were owned by their, by their masters. But the minute the debt was paid off, they were free. Slaves could be doctors and teachers and field workers and house servants. But, but again, the, the key is freedom was possible for many merit, which is obviously the difference. And so when Paul uses an illustration of, of human slavery, there are parts of, of that analogy that, that, that apply and parts that don't. And the aspect that Paul wants us to grasp about this analogy, he points out very clearly in the verse. We don't have to guess. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves of the one whom you obey. I mean, Paul repeats the, the term obedience twice. Because that's the part that he wants you to hold on to in this illustration of slavery. Throw all the other stuff about slavery that comes into your mind and focus on the relationship between the master and the slave and obedience. That's what Paul wants you to get in this analogy. Don't import all the other stuff. He wants to emphasize obedience and ownership side of the, side of the illustration. The one you obey is your master, and slaves obey their masters. I thought about how to, how to, how to illustrate this, and frankly, my mind went back to, to hunting, as it often does. It's like hunting dogs. I mean, when you turn a pack of hounds loose, there may be 15 of them, and they're all barking all at once, and, and you're on this ridge, and you can hear the, this pack of dogs barking way out there. And the owner of the dog can actually pick out the bark of the specific dog. He knows his voice. And Paul says, in the reverse, when the master calls the dog's name, the dog obeys his voice. I mean, if two men are standing and one is the owner and the other is not, 
and they both call the dog's name, the dog will come to the master's voice because he knows the master's voice. He obeys the master's voice in the same way, Paul says. God calls to you as a Christian, and so does sin. Sin still has a voice. And the one you listen to and submit to is your true master. And Paul says, as a believer in grace, you obey God's voice. Or as Joel James said, Master Smith and Master Jones call to the same slave. And that's the slave will respond to the one who owns them. I mean, that's the point Paul's trying to make here. So slavery has two components. One is the, the master or ownership part, and the other is, is the slave obedience part. And Paul uses the obedience side here in this argument. Why does he do that? Because their argument is you're not going to obey God. You're just going to be unrestrained. And Paul says, no, it's not what Christianity produces at all. As a Christian, you're a slave to God. You're owned by Him, and you obey Him. And you come to both of those positions joyfully in the gospel and without any concern. Because grace changes your relationship to God and changes your heart so you now desire to do the things that were once in the law. Which is Paul's explanation to those who claim his message produces lawless people. Paul, the message of grace, you're saying that the law is not needed any longer. It just produces lawless people. Paul says, no, it does not. It produces obedient people. That's what it produces. And he says, you Romans should understand that because many of you were slaves yourselves or you own slaves. As a side note, one commentator pointed out that this passage, Romans 6, 15 through 23, just turns the argument against lordship salvation into mush. I mean, it just makes no sense whatsoever. You know, lordship salvation that you... The idea that you take Jesus as Savior, he's like your fire insurance, and then sometime years later you make him Lord in your, in your life down the road and you now submit to him. I mean, it's laughable. That's laughable if you understand what Paul's saying in this passage. I mean, Paul's saying at the moment of grace, you have a new master, and that new master is Lord over you, and that is the one you obey from the heart. That's his whole argument here. Paul's whole argument here against the accusation that grace makes you antinomian against the law or grace makes you lawless is that the minute that you embrace the gospel by grace, you're under a new master being Christ and obedience comes. And if you don't obey him, he's not your master because slaves obey their master. Just as crazy as it would be to be standing there with two masters calling to the same slave and the slave doesn't listen or hear. And now because of the gospel of grace, you want to obey and you want to be owned, which is why a Christian finds it even repugnant to think about continuing in sin as one of God's children, which is why Paul says, may it never be. This is what Paul wants you to retain in the slave-master concept, this ownership and obedience component. And and that's what he means when, 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 he, when he says, I'm speaking in human terms in verse 19. This is farther down, but look at verse 19. Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. I think he means, I'm using an analogy that you can understand, but not one that has a perfect parallel. You have to be careful with illustrations and metaphors and things in the Bible. There are things that the writer wants you to understand about them. There are other things that don't apply at all. So you've got to pay attention. I'm speaking in human terms. I'm using something that you can understand as an analogy, but it's not a perfect parallel. Human slavery versus God's slavery. There's some things. Just like marriage is, is not a perfect parallel between Christ and the church, but, but, but it's something that we can understand. And as a Christian, you, you have a master, and he's a good one, but he's still your master. And not only that... Paul will remind us next that we're all slaves of someone, whether we want to be or not. We're either slaves of God who is good or we're slaves of sin, which is evil. This concept of biblical slavery, the biblical concept of slavery, is exactly why Christians don't run headlong into sin and why 
even though that the, the Old Testament law has ceased. It's also why Paul and John and the other apostles have no problems calling themselves slaves of Jesus Christ. That's what a bondservant is, a slave. That's the correct word. They have no problem calling Paul a slave of Jesus Christ. It's a joyful term because of who the master is. I mean, in one sense, no one would want to be a slave unless you're already a slave under a harsh master and now you get the privilege to be a slave under a good master, right? It changes the equation, doesn't it? If you're a slave already, you're a slave to sin and now you get the privilege to be a slave to a good master being God? Well, I'll take that any day of the week. Anybody in here want to go back to the, to, to the devil as your father and sin as your master? I don't want to go back there. I'm happy to be called a slave of God because he's good. See, that's what, what you have to grasp. It's not a matter of do you want to be a slave. It's a matter you already are a slave. And God in the gospel gives you the opportunity to be his. So why wouldn't you do what's pleasing to him? Why would that even be a problem? Because you don't have some list of, of rules out there that somehow those things are going to keep me from, from, from doing the, the wrong thing. What's going to keep me from doing the, the wrong thing is knowing that I have a new master and I love him and I want to obey him and it comes from my heart. And you have to keep both sides of the equation in front of you in proper tension or you can get off kilter in serving the Lord. I mean, you get too heavy on the obey and the ownership side, then, then like, you know, like God is my master, therefore I obey, I obey, I obey, I obey. If you camp too much there, then, then you're not going to find joy. Well, the fruits of grace. It's not a burdensome thing. I mean, Jesus said his yoke is, is easy and light. How can a yoke be easy and light? Well, it's because of who who's driving the cart, whose yoke it is. And also the yoke that used to be under. Oh, it's way, way better than sin's yoke. But if you neglect that ownership, obedience side, then, then you're not going to be useful to God. You may even drift into sin. Paul's saying these two are not in opposition to each other. You, you have to keep one in each hand. You have to know God's goodness and rejoice in that, but you also know that you're owned and, and you obey a good master. I mean, as one, if one, as one said, if Jesus is master, I will happily be a slave, won't you? I mean, if he's Lord, if, if he's God, if he's master, then I'll give up all my rights, all ownership, all everything. I have to. He's master. He's Lord. I will exist for his purposes alone. But on the other hand, if Jesus, if it's Jesus as the master, then there's no better or more wonderful reality in the world because he is good and he's kind. And he always has my best interests at heart, not some selfish purpose, and he'll care for me all the days of my life. And so I rejoice at the opportunity to be in his household. You see, when Paul says we're not under law, he doesn't mean that we're lawless or that we can do what we want to do. It means that you're not under law but under obedience. You're not under some external code. You're under obedience from the heart. And he's showing this by applying his argument. Look at how he ends verse 16. So the beginning of verse 15 is the question. Verse 16, this general argument. Do you not know that, that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey? General principle about slavery. And now he begins to, to tip his toe in the water of, of, of applying it spiritually. Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. He, he leaps there from this general principle about slavery to to, to, to the specific application that he'll start in verse 17 and beyond. I mean, after he establishes the obedience part of the slave-to-master relationship, then he starts to apply it to, to Christians. Notice, though, what he contrasts. Notice Paul contrasts sin with obedience. Verse 16, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. 
That's not what you would expect Paul to say if there's a direct parallel. You would expect him to say sin resulting in death or faith resulting in righteousness. Faith is what he's talking about. Salvation by faith alone. But he uses the word obedience here. Sin is contrasted with obedience, not, not faith. To show how ridiculous it is to suggest that the gospel would ever lead to a life of sin. The gospel doesn't lead to a life of sin. It actually leads to obedience. We're no longer under an external set of rules that we measure against to make sure that we keep. A Christian who's been transformed by the gospel now has an internal desire for obedience. It's not the law that makes you good. It's the keeping of it. And before faith, we were kept under that law, which was like a schoolmaster standing over you, calling you out, instructing your conscience, wrapping your hands if you got out of line. And the Jews are having a hard time making the transition from somebody standing over them to somebody who has this desire to obey and the ability now to obey. That's the motivation, the, the change. It goes from external to the internal. But Paul says, but when the gospel came, you were made a son. And a son now understands from the heart that he wants to please his father. And he strives for, for, for obedience. Which comes from the heart now that, that he's in his father's grace. I mean, a Christian is never lawless. We're not under the law in the Old Testament sense, but that doesn't mean that I'm without the law of God or that I don't, ex, uh, I don't recognize rights or wrongs. I, I'm now under what Paul calls the law of Christ, which means I obey Christ from my heart because Christ sets upon my heart. And what that produces is not sin. What that produces is obedience. That's why Paul uses the word obedience here. Just as I naturally obeyed the impulses of sin that brought forth death, I now supernaturally obey the desires of Christ, which brings forth righteousness. You see the difference. And notice Paul does the same thing with this term righteousness, verse 16. Either of sin resulting in death. That was, that was what I used to obey, impulse from my heart, sin, and the result of that was death. Now of obedience. That's, that, that's, my, that's my impulse, my inclination as a Christian is to obey. And the result of that is in righteousness. I mean, righteousness is not the opposite of death, right? Sin is contrasted with obedience. Death is contrasted with righteousness. You, righteousness is not the opposite of death. You would expect Paul to say life. You would expect Paul to say whether of sin unto death or obedience to life. But he says obedience to righteousness. Why? He says righteousness, and it's not by an accident. Because if Paul would have said life, then Paul would have actually spoken heresy. Lloyd-Jones said, if Paul would have put the word life here instead of righteousness, he would have contradicted his own teaching and he would have taught a lie because he would have been teaching that obedience leads to life. And if you say obedience leads to eternal life, then you're teaching justification by works. And Paul covers that clearly in the verse that you know well. That's part of Romans Road. Look at verse 23. Here's the summary of everything that he says here. Notice in verse 23, it begins with a little word for. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace brings eternal life. Sin brings death. Eternal life is not the result of obedience. That's a gift from God. So Paul here rightly says obedience from the heart leads to righteousness. What's the byproduct of obedience? When I obey God, what happens? Well, I live a righteous life. Righteousness shows up in, in, in my life. Obedience leads to a kind of righteous life which God's people should live and now want to live because they're saved. And that's what the gospel brings that the law could never bring and never will. No matter how many fences you put up outside on the, on the external that you think keep you from doing whatever, if there is not an internal transformation, if there's not obedience from the heart, if grace has not transformed you, you can put up a million fences. 
and you'll find some way to dig around them or, or go through them. And even if you don't, you'll not be pleasing to God because without faith, it's impossible for God to take pleasure. This is the other side of the coin. This, this, this righteousness here is the other side of the coin of imputed righteousness. You understand that we're credited with righteousness from Christ before, uh, before God based on, based on faith alone. So the righteousness of Christ, who Christ is and what Christ has done is credited to our account. And we, we, we stand on this platform of justification. We, we're justified, and, and that's a past event. And nothing can ever change that. God is never more pleased with you than the moment in which you're saved because God's pleasure is in His Son. You get the credit, you get the record of Christ's righteousness. But then based on that, you, you become like the Son. You, you're transformed into His image. So now you have this practical righteousness or tangible righteousness. You begin to change the way you live. You obey, and that produces godly fruit in your life. That has nothing to do with how you get to heaven or whether you're saved. You do that because you are saved. And then having been placed in union with Christ, you're now under this reign of grace. We're obedient from the heart. And that obedience, Paul says, produces actual righteousness. Tangible righteousness shows up in our lives. And we now act righteously. Now again, it's not our standing before God. It's a byproduct of our standing by faith. I mean, think of, it, think of it this way. You're justified by faith alone, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now that you're secure, you live a changed life. What well, the Bible calls sanctification. And sanctification involves obedience. And Paul is arguing where the power for obedience is. The power is not external law or rules. The power is grace operating in the heart. But obedience doesn't save you. You could never be holy on your own in order to get to God because you're a slave to sin. But, but now that He has brought you to Himself by His grace, you want to be holy as He is holy. You want to be like your Father, don't you? I mean, do you want to be righteous as He is righteous? I do. I hate it whenever I'm not. And if you want to be righteous as He is righteous, it's a clear indication that you're His, which is what Jesus means when He says, if you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commandments. It just naturally comes from somebody who's been transformed by grace. Just as you naturally followed the impulses of sin, now there's something in a Christian that wants to obey God. We're not lords under ourselves. We have a new master who is Christ Jesus. We're not unleashed. We're unleashed unto obedience. A new master who's good, who's loving. God who's self-sacrificing on your behalf and compassionate. That's who you submit to. Not Old Testament law, but Christ who's changed our hearts. And Christ who's now reigning in our hearts. And quite frankly, if you listen to Romans 6 and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense or you've tried it, this doesn't work without regeneration. Like if you're not born again, this makes no sense whatsoever. You can't even apply what it says here. I mean, Paul's whole point is he's assuming now that you have been justified by God, you have been transformed by grace because you've placed your faith in Christ alone and the Spirit of God has regenerated you. You've been born again. You now have spiritual life in you. And because that life is in you, you're now under a new master and your heart is changed and what is produced is, is natural obedience to Him and that natural obedience turns into righteous life. So when you have the opportunity to sin, you may slip into it, but you are not going to run headlong into it because you hate it. But if that hasn't happened to you, then there is no obedience in the heart. And you're still a slave. You're just a slave to sin. Sin that drives you to do things that, that are not helpful to you. And if you're still caught in the throes of that, let me tell you about a, a new master. One who's good. 
one who's kind. Master that saw you in the slave market of sin, saw you in the shackles and not being able to, to, to do anything about that and came and said, I want that one right there. And I want that one right there. And he takes the key. He pays for you, his own blood. And he takes the shackles off. Amazing grace. And now he frees you to live. And as he frees you to live, you're going to say, I don't care about that guy anymore. I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. That's not what you're going to do. Is You're going to say, you're my master. I'll follow you anywhere you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to say because you are master and I am slave and I'm a happy slave. Do you not? Is that not what's in your heart as a believer? And that's what Paul's describing here. That's where the power is. And if you don't have that power, you can, you can have it not by walking forward or saying some magical words. You, you, you can have it by, by believing upon Jesus Christ, trusting in his work on the cross alone, the promise that God says he'll save you if you believe upon him. That's grace. And that's good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your great grace. Oh, whenever I, I think about it deeply, some of these same things come into my mind. I mean, is this, is this possible? I mean, can you really be that good? Because I've not known good. I'm, I know myself. I mean, can, can, can salvation really be that free? Because everything in life costs and people are people and they promise you things but then don't uphold their end of the bargain. But you're not like that at all. Let God be true and every man be a liar. There's not a single promise that you've ever made that you've went back on. Including the one that whosoever will call upon your name, trust fully in you, shall be saved. And I thank you for that gospel full and free. May we rejoice as we uh, look into it today and live obedient lives as your slaves. In Jesus' name, amen.